So today we're going to try to wrestle with this question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Google, what is the meaning and purpose of life? And you'll find more than enough answers that would love to fill your mind. You'll find people with PhDs, you'll find people who have written numerous books and have accolades probably more than everyone here combined has ever had to their name. And they will gladly offer you the answers to this question. And you could even say, well, Phil, aren't you trying to do that today? Well, at my best, hopefully I'm not. Hopefully, God's word is. But let's just take a look at what some people say, because I just think it's interesting while we kind of breach this subject on what is the purpose of our lives. Like, what is the purpose and meaning of our lives? One person um, says this, one, one doctor of psychology said this, we exist to continue to exist. This is a doctor. Doc, just, he went to school many, many years to come up with this. Isn't this brilliant? This is, I think this is, this is something like three-year-olds come up with. <laughs> we exist to exist. Uh, why don't we uh, maybe, you know, uh, you just pulled some random person. There's a lot of idiots online who call themselves doctors. Okay, anyone who Stephen Hawking is, Stephen Hawking, renowned, right? Renowned physicist, theoretical physicist. Um, he's often quoted as saying this. He said, work gives you meaning and purpose. Work And life is empty without it. Work. So I guess, according to one of the most brilliant minds of the 21st century in the scientific world, work. Work is the purpose of your life. Isn't that encouraging? Like, you getting up every day and doing work. That's the purpose of your life. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Hawking. Of course, we can't talk about the purpose and meaning of life without at least talking about this number, 42. 42 is, okay, so now I'm dating myself. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand, please. Okay. Oh, goodness gracious, I got it. Okay, so this is a clue that, Gary, I have to stop using this illustration because this is a, if any of you ever read the book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in fact, actually it was during um, last year's Boundary Waters trip that I, he, he introduced me to it and I said, I've always seen the movie, but I've never read the book. And he's like, dude. There's a whole series. You have to read the book. Anyways, in, uh, to make a long story short, in the movie, the person's looking for the meaning of life. And it's just, it's a crazy story. And so there's this supercomputer called Deep Thought. And then they go to the supercomputer to get the answer to the meaning of life. And then it takes 7.5 million years. There's this scene where like, they're just waiting. We're just waiting. And 7.5 million years go by of computation. And, uh, the, uh, computer says that the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything, is 42. And that's kind of how the movie goes. <laughs> just, just, you have to kind of watch it to kind of get it, and so it just it doesn't make sense. So I actually beg to say that 42 is just about as good an answer as the purpose of our life is to exist. The purpose of our life is work. Like, this is crazy stuff. Now, that's Google. What about the scriptures? Because I think that's what we've come here to, to talk about. When you read the scriptures, when you, maybe more specifically, when you really listen to the teachings of Jesus, 
what you find is that God's purpose for our lives is distinctly different from any other purpose that this world would want you to embrace. And it is definitely not something that you and I are apt to embrace by default. In fact, it's hard for us. The reason why I have to talk about it, and some of you who've been part of Clarity for a while will know that this is a subject we talk about probably regularly, is because we are not apt to embrace it on a regular basis. We need to be reminded. Now, if you're new to faith or the Bible, what you need to know is that from generation to generation, followers of Jesus have held on to these two things that Jesus said as kind of the motivating factor, the foundation of purpose in their life. And it's really these two things. Jesus' great commandments and Jesus' great Anyone know the second one? Commission. Right? For generations and generations of generations of followers of Christ. We've talked about this and there are even churches that say, look, we just exist to do two things. Help people follow Jesus' great commandments and help the church live out the great commission. Now, Jesus' great commandments are often simplified in the statement, love God and what? Love others, right? You, you know, you've probably been to the church. That this simplified statement that Jesus' great commandments are simply this. Love God, hey, and love others. But like, what does that really mean, though? Like, what, is, what does it mean to love God and to love others? And so we, we kind of have to wrestle with that question we get before we jump into our text. And so to answer that question and the ultimate question of how does Jesus change our purpose for living, because um, if you didn't know this, he does. He changes it. We have to look at how Jesus responds to someone asking him to reveal what is the most important commandment, the modern-day equivalent of the question, Jesus, what is the purpose of life? What's the most important thing? And here's what Jesus says, Matthew 22, verse 37. He said to him, the person who asked this question, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these Two commands. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Now, most people, when they hear this passage of Scripture, don't have a problem with this. In fact, even people who don't believe everything they've heard about Jesus and the Bible are somewhat familiar with this command of Jesus to love God and to love others. And they would even maybe admit that what Jesus had to say here, maybe not on the loving God part, because that gets into religion, but at least on the whole loving others thing, people can get behind. In fact, it's what people who are not Christians often charge those who are Christians for being guilty of not 
actually doing. It's the reason why they have said, well, I can't believe in God because Jesus said that you're supposed to love others and you're not loving others and I'm loving others. I'm more Christian than you. But yet they have failed to believe in the one true God who gave the command and revealed this new way of living and this new way of thinking. Some of you um, might be familiar with the transcendentalist movement. Ralph Waldo Emerson is kind of the center of that. It's, it, was a, it was an offshoot of spiritualism that really is responsible for the rise of many modern philosophical and social movements that we find today. But Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the central figures of what is known as transcendentalism, uh, and I'll just go out on record and say, transcendentalism is not Christianity, just so you know. It's not. It's not. It's not Christianity. But he's, he's been uh, quoted as saying this. The purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful. Ooh, so now we're getting a little deeper here. I like this. It's to be honorable. Yeah, that sounds kind of good. Be compassionate. I like compassion. And to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Now, look at that. That looks pretty good, right? Doesn't that sound like a good life purpose statement? That's pretty good. First of all, um, when we talk about transcendentalism, Ralph Waldo Emerson and all these other guys like Edgar Allan Poe who have been who are part of this, they, they borrowed a lot from Christianity. They will say that. We openly admit it. In fact, there's a lot of transcendentalists who would say that they are Christian, um, even though if you take a look at Emerson's life in the end, he definitely was not a Christian. But so, like, where did he get some of these? Well, he took Christian values and things that Jesus said regarding what is the character of the Christian life, and he put it into a mission statement. And so it, it, it sounds Christianish, doesn't it? And it sounds noble. Here's my problem. My problem is that Jesus' great commandments are not and cannot be reduced to something that sounds like just love others. Make a difference. Just love others. Make a difference. It cannot be. We have to be people who also love God. And we don't have to search the scriptures very hard to find out what it means to love God, which is the obvious question. If I'm saying that in order to be the kind of person who love others well, you have to actually love God, then well, what does it mean to love God? Well, 1 John 2.5 tells us this, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Phil, Phil, what does it mean to love God? I mean, I mean like, I don't know. I mean, do I give him a hug? I don't know. Like, how do I give him a hug? You know, do I, do I sing love songs to him? Oh, you're all I want. Is that how what it means to love him? Well, those are emotions. But do you want to know how, how the scripture tells us we are to actually love God? You know what love looks like? Do you know what God's love language is? It's not acts of service. It's not, you know, touch. It's not, it's, it's obedience. God's love language is obedience. In fact, when Jesus taught what it means to love him, Jesus 
who actually was God made flesh dwell among us. Here is what he taught his disciples in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, if you love me, you gotta buy me some flowers. Right? No, no, that's not what he said. Some of you are already going there. He said, if you love me, what? Obey my commandments. Obey. Obey. So loving God means obeying God. Loving God means obeying God. But what does it mean to love others then? Okay, so I get that. Okay, so I'm going to obey God. But how, you still haven't answered the question. Like, what does it mean to love others? Well, there's so many different definitions, by the way, of what it means to love. It's actually very, it's actually a very polarizing topic to talk about in our culture today. Like, what is, what is love? Um, It's a subject, just so you know, I'm not going to waste any time trying to unpack. At the expense of poorly unpacking how the scriptures define what it means for us to love God and to love others and to live out the Great Commission. Because we could spend uh, maybe a whole series, maybe someday in the future, talking about that. But I will say this, I will say this. Speaking of polarizing... Uh, in a fascinating article entitled The Great Commission Must Be Our Guide in These Polarizing Times, uh, a woman by the name of Kathy Keller, if you're wondering why her name sounds familiar, it's because she is an author, theologian, but she's also the co-founder of New York's Redeemer Presbyterian with uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church with her husband. You might know him. His name is Tim Keller. Um, but she is a theologian in her own right and, and a very well uh, well noted author, but here's what she writes. She actually writes this on her and her husband's webpage in an article entitled, The Great Commission Must Be Our Guide in These Polarizing Times. Here's what she writes. The gospel comes equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus to change hearts. No other message has either that dynamic or that joy. That Jesus lived a perfect life and exchanged it with us in order to die the death our sin required. And that he rose and is making, listen, all things new. Until he finally returns to remake the heavens and the earth. That message changes everything. Hearts, minds, lives, communities. And it is our privilege. It's our privilege to take it to the world. It's a great article on your own. I recommend you check it out. If you are in our communities, you'll see. I'll post it. I always post my notes up to our community resource page. If you're not part of a community, you should join one so you can always get the notes from every Sunday sermon. But I'll post it in there. You can check it out. But here's the point. When you look at the scriptures and wrestle with the reality of all that God has done to make it possible for you and me to be rescued from our sin and become new creations in Christ with new hearts, with new minds, and new ways of living, it doesn't take a Bible degree or even understanding all the Greek or having access to a Greek professor. It doesn't require all of that to know and understand that Jesus' great commission 
to go into all the world and make disciples is not just a why we live our lives, but it's also a way. In other words, Jesus' great, great commission acts as a foundation for why we love others and as a tangible and actionable command we can, ga- we can engage our lives in as a way to demonstrate our love for God and others. I'll say it again because I messed it up. There's probably a better way I could wordsmith this. If you're a wordsmith, come back to me later and let me know so I could tweet it in under the allowed characters. But this is what I got. This is the best I got. Jesus' great commission acts as the foundation for why we love others and is a tangible and actionable command we can engage our lives in as a, listen, way to demonstrate our love for God and for others. In fact, author, professor, theologian, Dr. Tom Rayner wrote this regarding the place of Jesus' great commission in every believer's life. He says this, thriving churches have the great commission as the centerpiece of their vision, while dying churches have forgotten the clear command of Christ. I'm going to be audacious, and I'll say this. Can I say this? I haven't thought about it. I'm kind of going off script here. Give me a second. Okay, I might delete this later, but I'm just going to go while I have you here with me. In my study of church history, which is not exhaustive, but I think I've done more than the average guy, in my study of church history, I've never seen a dying church wholeheartedly engaged in carrying out the Great Commission. But I have seen many churches die because somewhere along a line they forget that the purpose of their lives is to make disciples. And it doesn't say of the already existing people. This is where a lot of churches, they, they mess this up. You know, oh, we're, well, we're making disciples. Well, the people you already have. That is what you're supposed to do. What you want, a cookie? You need to make disciples of all nations. It needs to go out. From you. And so what is this great commission that these theologians are referring to? It's what Jesus said to his disciples in our passage of scripture today. Having already established, by the way, as we started in verse 16, he established, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. In other words, listen to me, disciples, what I'm about to say, I have the permission to say it. I can say it. I can say it because I have been given all authority. And that also means you don't have an excuse to doubt it or not follow it. You all know what this is like if you're a parent, right? Go take out the trash. I don't want to. I didn't what? I didn't ask you. I told you to. Why? Because you have ultimate authority in The house. Now, God is more than just an earthly parent. He is all-powerful. And Jesus had been given 
this power. And he says, after declaring this, what's the first thing he would say after claiming that I have all the power? Does he say, don't sin? (laughs) That would be a good one. Or, like, there's a plethora of things that he could have been recorded as saying after declaring, I have all the power, and what I'm about to say is really important. What does he say? He says, go. Make disciples. Go. Make disciples. That's why the scripture also records Jesus' literal last words to his disciples as this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be holy? No, I mean, I think that's one of the acts. The, the outflows, and when you think about the theological ramifications of God's sanctification in your life and his, 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 his sanctifying work to justify you. That's but what does Jesus have to say about this power of the Holy Spirit that's come upon us? He says this. This is what it does. You'll be my witnesses. Living out your life in demonstration that you love God so other people can just see. Know what it says? Know what does it say? Telling. Telling. Telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What was Jesus doing? What was Jesus doing? He was giving them a clear vision of what would happen as a result of followers of Jesus Obeying the command to do what? Go. Make disciples. Go. Make disciples. Now, if you haven't figured out whether or not you believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible, uh, you need to know, first of all, I'm not preaching to you. If you haven't committed to submitting your life to Jesus as your master and savior, listen, you don't have to do anything I am suggesting. You're off the hook, primarily because you've never committed to following Jesus' commands in the first place. Okay, so just set that out there. But, but, if you are a follower of Jesus, at some point you have to ask yourself, am I living out Jesus' great commandments? And, And am I living out Jesus' great commission in my life? At some point, you just have to ask yourself this question. I mean, it's... You can try to debate whether or not these are important. I I just don't know if you're going to get really far. You can debate whether or not these are central to the outflow of a Christian life. We could debate that, but I just don't know how far you're going to go. And you have to ask yourself, am I living out Jesus' great commandments and commission in my life? Or, or, are you someone who has done what I have done many times in my life and choosing maybe to live with, uh, forgive me, I'll be a little irreverent here. Maybe you've chosen to live with a big butt. Big butt. You know what I'm talking about? 
If I'm going to be blunt about it, I think at least I have several big butts in my life. And before you're tempted to cancel me, because I know that's what we like doing nowadays, or maybe be disgusted by the fact that a pastor would be talking about big butts, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that maybe, maybe you have at least one big butt as well. Yeah, hurts, doesn't it? Almost every person who considers themselves a Christian I know has at least one big butt. It's the very thing that gets the way in living a consistent life for Jesus. I think you know what I'm talking about. See if you can recognize some of these big butts. But I have to work more hours this week. And, but my favorite TV show is on. But my kids have practice. But I got to post this picture on Instagram. But it's such a beautiful day. But I'm not just in the mood, but I deserve a break today. So many things interfere with living a fully engaged life in Jesus. More often than that, it's something that has to do with some kind of, uh, I don't know, but. Even our littlest, littlest of but can distract us. The littlest but can make me think, oh, I'm, I'm not going to pray today. I'm not going to think about how I can share the gospel today. I'm not going to deny myself today. I'm not going to read my Bible. Whatever God asks me to do, I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I seem to have a but for it. And ultimately get away with not doing what God wants me to do. In fact, here are a, a, a list of maybe some of the most popular buts known to humanity. But I don't have enough money yet. But they won't like me if I talk about Jesus. But I don't know if God will do what I ask. But I, I just can't get motivated. I just don't feel like it. But, but, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid. But, but I don't know all the answers. But community is the same night as Sunday night football. But I can't let my life just speak for itself. Can I just let my life speak for itself? But I'm not happy right now. I'm not coming from a good place, you know? But that's not my gift. That's not my gift. You know, but isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that the pastor's job? But I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to pray. But, but, but I, I don't even know where to start. But I don't, I don't even think I know people who are not Christian. But no one else is doing it. Making disciples is not only just a command that Jesus gives, but it is essential to the purpose of our living. The call to make disciples is why followers of Christ live the way we live. I guess you could say it's the why behind the but. And ultimately, it's the point I'm trying to make my fellow butt lovers. That if your butt is bigger than your why, your butt is probably too big. So let's minimize the excuses and shrink the butt. Shrink the butt. Say it with me. Shrink the butt. I oh, know you don't even want to say it with me. See, some of you are just so appalled. Shrink the butt. When you shrink the butt. And, and listen, it, it's just a, I, I'm a person who 
Danielle will tell them. She knows this. I, I have a really hard time making people feel guilty because I grew up in church that made people feel guilty, that used like the scripture, like made people feel guilty. And, <clears throat> and then she said, and Danielle's always like, you know what? It's not on you. If people feel guilty because you preach the word, then that's on them. And so I gave this little illustration. I actually stole the illustration from, from a, a video I showed along many, many years ago. Some of you remember it. We had a series called Big Butts. Um, but the, the point is this. If I could say it as lovingly as I can, I mean, we should stop the excuses that we have as a church. I'm just saying like us in general. I'm not even talking about you, you, like, why aren't you leading anybody to Jesus? Why aren't you making a disciple? That's a conversation we have at a community level. You should join one. I'm just saying like us. Like, I'm looking at some of you, and we've been together for years, some of you. Some of you have known for just for months. But I truly love each and every one of you, and I'm honored to be part of this church with you. And COVID came and gave us a lot of butts. And then post-COVID realities came and he gave us a lot of butts. Finances got hard for us as a church and we had some butts. We had to move locations and we had some butts. People we loved ended up moving to Texas and moving to other places of the world. And we had some butts. People who are really talented and great at ministry had kids, got sick, whatever, right? And then we had some butts. Like, and we said, like, oh, well, if, you know, so-and-so didn't, like, oh, Philip didn't have a heart attack. You know, did, Philip, Philip, I didn't have a heart attack. Philip didn't have heart surgery. Maybe we'd be somewhere else. We have a lot of butts. And I'm just saying, like, we should get rid of the big butts that keep us as a church from reaching more and more people for Jesus. I just think now's the time for us to at least declare it. Because if Jesus changes everything, why wouldn't we want Jesus to change our whole world. Like, I, I don't know about you, but Jesus has changed my life. Like, he has changed my life in so many ways. And it, it wasn't just a one-time thing. Like, I remember when I was 15 years old and I gave my faith to Jesus, and there was lots of tears, there was lots of crying, and uh, I remember the worship song was, oh, you're all I want. That's why I sang that song. It was, it, was, it was at a choir, the fire conference, and like, you know, they were saying, yeah, come down here, give your life to Jesus. And I remember, and it was so huge. And I remember, like, it changed my life. I went back home, threw all my boys to men CDs away, because, you know, the only person I want to make love to is Jesus, not any other person. You know, like, I'll make love to you, God. And so, it changed my life. But listen, I've been following Jesus for a really long time, and along the way, He's still changing me. Is he changing you? Is he changing your life? Listen, believer, I know he is. He's making a difference. Why would we keep that to ourselves? Why would we just be the people who are committed to great commitments? Let's be people who are committed to the great commission. We can do it. And maybe in another series we'll talk about like the details. But today, I just wanted to kind of motivate us and point us back to where the purpose of our lives should be focused. God's great commandments and the great commission. Let's live like this. I know we can. Let's do it. No ifs, ands, or. 
You get it. If Jesus changes everything, which he does, this means that the work of Jesus in your life is made most evident when your life's purpose is reoriented to accomplish the great commission of Jesus through your life. The work of Jesus in your life is made most evident when your life's purpose is reoriented, it requires that, to accomplish the great commission of Jesus through your life. And make no mistake, the great commission and the great commandments are not simply great because of the great commitment it takes, it does, but they are great because of the great change it makes in and through the people who have decided to be disciples of Jesus that go and make disciples of Jesus everywhere they go, with everyone they meet, every day they live.